Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me today, as always, is a man who wisely decides and we gladly obey. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass. This week we are talking about Ingrid Bergman's 1975 adaptation of the Mozart opera, uh, The Magic Flute. Um, it's, it's very interesting to swing from last week with The Last Temptation of Christ, one of our most uh, deeply, I'll say profound, uh, movies, uh, to this very light-hearted uh, comic opera. Um, with still a lot of drama to it, but it is... It is wonderful, is what it is, Let's Adam. start this off with that. Mozart himself, uh, in creating this, you know, not only did Mozart really create the idea that you could have an opera not in Italian, uh, <laughs> he, 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 with the Magic Flute, created an opera that is both comedic and dramatic, uh, mixing genres in that way. That is not something that was done prior, prior either. Um, I do want to start this conversation off, though, before we get too much onto that, by saying that the original Swedish name uh, for this movie is called Troflogen, and that Troflogen, or Flagten, I, I really have no idea how to pronounce it, but it looks like a horror movie name. That is that is definitely a thing that that if I it would just be some foreign horror. But film here's movie. the if thing, <laughs> Adam, is what I've yeah. noticed is that. In my limited capacity to understand, all Swedish looks like it is written by aliens. <laughs> yes. yes. It all yes, looks it like it belongs wow. in Stargate. It's true. It's true. So this is Ingrid... Ingmar Bergman, not Ingrid. Yeah, you said that the in the previous episode, too. I, did, I said that... I'm sorry. I yeah, did I didn't say anything because I, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Thank you for, for ignoring my shortcomings for once. That was very kind of you. I'm sorry. Uh, Ingmar Bergman. Uh, sorry. Um, Ingrid Bergman was in the last Ingmar Bergman movie. Right, which, which was is... Which Sonata, uh, which was a brilliant yeah. movie. Uh, and we also watched... Uh, we've also watched Ingmar Bergman's... Uh, <laughs> how did I just lose the name of The Seventh Seal? Yeah, you... A very did, long time ago. Yeah, and but, it was not as good an episode. No. <laughs> just, but here's the thing, is... Now that I have more material to work with, I really feel yeah. like... I... I know that he is not. This is not an original work, obviously, but I really, yeah. really like this film, and oh, yeah. I liked Autumn Sonata too. And not nearly as much as I like Seven Seals. So I'm kind of like in the position where sometimes this happens, where I feel like the thing that I'm supposed to know from the creator is the yeah. thing I like the least from the creator. I don't know, I, like because this was yeah. wonderful. And it's not just because of this is the source material. I mean, the source material is also wonderful. This is wonderful, but the way he presents it is wonderful. It's so. Yes. I'm going to use that word Let's a use lot the word today. Wonderful. One more time. One more time. Um, wonderful. It's it's clearly that Bergman is in love with Mozart and in love with the magic flute itself. And, oh yeah, there's uh, knows what it can be and in love with theater. You know, we get a lot of we get a lot of. Um, this is a very theatrically set. Uh, film and 
even like with Henry V, we started on the stage, and then we slowly moved into a filmed version. Uh, with this, we have something like that happening. We start on the stage and we become more more film centric, but we never lose. It's shot like a movie, but we never lose the uh, set pieces, the background stuff. No, and he that goes makes out it, of his way that makes it a stage production. Point and he goes out of his way to remind to give us little views of backstage, even while the action's taking place. Uh, we get we continually cut to the audience, um, specifically that little girl who is Bergman's granddaughter. Yes, um, which isn't super important to know, but but still isn't that cute. Yeah, it is cute. Um, and during the overture, when we establish all that, when we when we establish the audience uh, anticipating waiting the stage, and we get um, this universality of opera, of music, of Mozart, of whatever he's trying to say is universal. We just have this, such a diverse group, people and cultures, um, represented within the crowd, and everyone intently waiting for this to start. Uh, even the children, even the old people, everyone uh, wants, this, wants this to happen and is, is patiently uh, waiting to, uh, to view the performance. Um, and it's Bergman trying to sell his love just as much. Yeah, and no, there's and you're, so much to love. There is. I mean, there it's, is. It's, no, I will say it's about not like the, you need to really. I'm sorry, you don't really need to go out of your way to try and sell that this is something to love. No, you don't. But like, oddly enough, that was probably the hardest part of the film for me was that the mm-hmm. overture is like. Um, so I, it'll probably come up again, but I basically watched this movie from beginning to end with my son, who is three years old, okay. does not speak Swedish. And does not read English, but uh-huh. I I find that his reactions, and I'm going to probably bring this up again, are so close to my own. It was kind of amazing. Yeah, it, it was a what was amazing is that the way this film is shot and acted is so sincere that yeah. he picked up on the emotions and the things that were going on with literally no verbal information to confirm what was going on other than the few times that I told him what the names of the characters were because he asked me. Yeah. He said, who's that? But during the the face part at the beginning, we both me and him had a similar reaction in that, what's going on here? Because it was Ingmar Bergman, I was somewhat concerned that things were going to... I wasn't sure where things were going. I was like, this is the magic flute. Are we actually well, yeah. going to get to watch the magic flute? Uh, but then we do, and I was so happy when we finally went into the show that I feel like yeah. I felt the same as the people in the audience when we finally got to the show. It's like, oh, here we go, you know. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, establishment in the overture, and you know, at the, at the same time, the overture it's itself an establishment. That was, right. the the function of the overture is to to give. Uh, hints and 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 others, you know, things. We need to set a theme to, and, to come yeah, about the music yeah. to set a theme, um, and and in a way we're we're setting that theme here. So we're setting. We've got shots outside of the theater that ostensibly this is being filmed at. Unfortunately, they couldn't actually film that at, at that theater. Uh, the theater he wanted to film at uh, was one of the few surviving Baroque theaters in Sweden, um, maybe the only one in Sweden, but. Uh, 
all those establishing shot outdoor shots are are that theater or that space and uh it turned out that they couldn't film it there because the structure just wouldn't have supported a film crew so instead they completely recreated it stronger um, <laughs> wow really on like that flywheel uh, that you see in the background right. every so often is is the wind machine from the theater that they recreated elsewhere on a soundstage. Um, but yeah, very painstakingly, I'm sure. Uh, but but then I've never seen the original to compare, so I don't actually know. But, but, it, but it felt exactly like what I wanted the theater that I've. It, yeah, it was perfect yeah. for the for the what we were being presented. So. It is it is an overture that establishes that this will be a love story to the Magic Blue and to Mozart as much as it is a presentation of his work. Um, but even even still, some of my favorite moments in the film are during the intermission. Oh, the intermission is wonderful. We don't actually get uh, the film. The intermission title card is up for like five seconds. Uh, before what we actually see is what the what the actors are doing during intermission. Yeah, so and I love queen, it. It's beautiful. <laughs> the queen of the night and her and her minions are smoking under a no smoking sign. Uh, um, one guy is reading another script, uh, penned to one of the minion kids uh, reading a Donald Duck. Comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> It's wonderful. Everybody's just hanging. And around then we've and got uh, we've got what is it? Um, oh, I'm gonna blank on the names now. I feel so stupid. <laughs> Our two main characters playing chess. Yes, uh, Tamino and uh, Parmina. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. we're gonna have a problem, Adam. Well, I, they're I'm, they're, I'm they're all meant to be kind of close. I know, and I and Papa I'm particularly Gino bad at remembering Papa them. Gina and, yeah, I'm very bad at remembering yeah. them though. <laughs> it's alright. Uh, these were all. Um, I believe all of these were Swedish opera or, or Nordic opera uh, actors and singers uh, who were cast, um, which is an interesting note only because Mozart's original was written specifically for the cast that would be performing it. Um, so the part of The Queen of the Night was written for his sister-in-law, and he made a joke about her, her not needing to change herself to get into character. Um, but more on that note, it's written for her because it's written in her range. Uh, the Queen of the Night, especially in that uh, second, her second area, um, where she's very angry, um, she hits some super high notes that are higher than people, <laughs> you know, common sopranos can hit. Uh, but he wrote them because he knew she could do it. And Monsato, uh, Mon, uh, Monostatos, um, has a lot of low notes because he knew that the uh, the guy who was playing him, uh, Mozart knew the guy who was playing him, could hit them. Uh, but at the same time, it being a mix of comedy and tragedy, uh, he had a lot of comedic actors who weren't necessarily trained opera, so he wrote a lot of pieces uh, in mind with, with those actors and what they'd be able to do. Uh, which is why a lot of the music pieces you'll find start with one tone to establish, tell the actor where they needed to be, uh, and st they'll echo, like a, like there'll be an oboe or something echoing. Right, the, right. Uh, it's the almost singer. what you would expect in um, 
a much lower at some points it's almost what you would expect in a much lower grade of music where yeah. you're going to have your musical accompaniment matching your vocal just so yeah. uh, you know just so there's not problems yeah <laughs> so that everybody knows where exactly where everybody is <laughs> and everybody's yeah. hitting the right notes at the right time and uh yeah. which is kind of a weird thing because it's also Mozart, and you expect it to be extremely complex, but at the same time, it makes it kind of whimsical. Yeah, and I like and it. it. Is. it and I think it's complex and whimsical um, in a lot of ways. And there's its whimsicalness is obviously why this is one of Mozart's most famous works. Um, but it's it's beautiful and it's happy. Um, Bergman, uh, uh, I sort of, I suppose, uh, contrarily. Um, this was recorded in the very traditional uh, way of recording a, a musical for film. Um, the actors singing and then and, and playing, and then that that being recorded and played back so that everyone could lip sync until they got it right. Um, Interesting. So he didn't he didn't do quite as quite as in depth as Mozart did uh, to make sure everything would be right. But at the same time, he was creating something um, very specific, too. Um, very interesting to note, uh, technically, uh, this was shot for television. Um, it was shot for the 50th anniversary of Swedish television and broadcast New Year's Day 1975 on Swedish television. That was its, pre- was its premiere. Um, and if I read correctly, um, it is the first... Uh, it's the first made-for-television film, at least, uh, to shoot with a stereo soundtrack. Um, really? To, to great effect. Uh, you listening with headphones, I'm sure, uh, if you didn't pick up on this, it's only because it's much more natural and... and, and well, fair. actually, I was not listening but, with headphones because this was... It was a lucky situation oh, yeah, where there was no... I you knew ahead of time yeah. that I could watch this with my son without yeah. Yeah. problems. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, but but one thing, there's a lot of times where, uh, specifically, I remember noticing it in the scene where Monstato, uh, or Monostatos, I, I'm never going to say his name right. No. Either. Yeah. Well, um, they're tough. He is uh, lusting after Pamina in her sleep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Um, and. Then he, he slinks away as he sees the Queen of the Night approach. And he is whispering off in left audio as her footsteps are coming on in right audio. Oh, you know, I didn't um, pick... I did pick up on some other of those audio cues. I didn't pick yeah. up on that one, but... Uh, I, I, mainly because my my copy had some <laughs> problems with it at that point. Uh, uh, actually, like it started stuttering and so I had to kind of skip oh, ahead. Yeah, I, I had a couple problems like that. Uh but um, no, there were a couple other occasions where, like, um, you could pick up that people people's positioning in the world based on their audio. Yeah, on their audio, it was it was a three dimensional sound uh, creation, uh, which which left right stereo is hard to do anyway. Right. Uh, without without a complete surround sound, that's that's very difficult. But it was still it worked out, um, and you know to. To the sound engineer, um, congratulations! Because yeah, you did amazing. a good you did a good job, especially since you were producing this for TV in 1975. Yeah. Yes, oh, good work, good on you. Uh, 
No, there's, there's, you know, it's really, the problem I'm having is that I have a really hard time separating the source material from, well, Burma, yeah, this because is... the source material is what I really love and want to talk about, but yeah. his interpretation is so, feels so good, feels so yeah. natural, feels like what I That's... would want to watch on a stage that exactly. I can't. I feel like all we're going to end up doing is just talking about the play. You know what I mean? Like, I can't... It's hard to talk about, like, what he did. Yeah. I think the last time... The last time we uh, talked about an adaptation like this, um, besides, uh, obviously, last time... Last Temptation of Christ was an adaptation of a book that we're just not familiar with. And we've had had a number of those. but, But things, you know... Where we where we, well, like we had like great expectations, source material. yeah, great like expectations that. is what I'm getting at, and 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 those those uh, adaptations of yeah. classic British lit that we're familiar with, you know, where where we're we're familiar enough that we can stop talking about the source material. Um, whereas here, the source material is just as great as as this production. Well, this production, is, right? And then and then I feel like um, I mean, he takes a few liberties, but not. A ton of them, to the point yeah. where, like, um, the difference being that because he presented it as a stage production, basically just, I know that we get shots that are not stage production presentation. Okay, we get yeah. a lot of them. There's, we get there's a, lot a lot of, of cut-ins and right. a lot of close-ups, but yeah. we are still presented with the idea that we are watching. We're basically, and you do see this in modern uh, recordings of stage productions. Anyway, that you would watch. Um, you know, if you watch a a um, film that is a stage production these days, a lot of times they've got enough cameras positioned in enough places that they can do some pretty yeah. hard close-ups and stuff on important characters at important times. And there's enough editing that goes into them that they don't look that far off of what we have here. Um, that it still feels like a stage production to me. And unlike our interpretations of, like, Great Expectations or any of those other ones where we're going from book to movie we're going from yeah. stage production to stage production we're going <laughs> we're going from well we're going from germanic opera um, to to swedish opera uh to to filmed swedish opera right but it still feels so, like a film of a swedish interpretation yeah, of yeah. a germanic yeah. opera so much so that i feel like it's even harder to parse out to, to separate the Yeah, two. it's it's very hard to separate. Um, um, so we might as well, yeah, I guess we, we can, can just we talk can t- about the story of the Magic Flute. Um, well, one one reason that it's hard to separate is that it's so... Bergman is so intent on it being a stage production. We already kind of talked about this. But, but you know, his, his, his use of cinematic stuff is sparse, you know. Uh, we do get the... the close-ups and obviously we kind of manipulate um spatial uh interaction yeah, we do. when we cut to pagina or uh papagino uh asleep in his dressing room when he realizes he's about to miss his cue <laughs> yeah he jumps yeah, up yeah. and hurriedly hurriedly runs through the backstage and gets gets help um getting into costume so you know but but things like that are, are very few and far between and we get most of most of what else we get um, as far as backstage stuff is um, cut shots of people the other actors reacting so right. you know 
Um, like when Tamino first plays his flute, I believe, if I remember correctly, we get Tamino playing his flute and we see uh, Pamina watching him from off stage. And at the same time, and, and with them playing chess uh, during the intermission, there's a lot of reinforcement of the characters going on. Right, with the right. Actors yeah, we do get that a their, little bit of that extra yeah. stuff that we wouldn't get in a normal yeah. play. Well, like it's like the queen, the queen of the night, and all of her minions yeah, smoking, smoking cigarettes, cigarettes under the no smoking sign. sign. Yeah, but and that yeah. only to me that only it doesn't. Unlike a lot of interpretations, really, all he's doing is magnifying the characters. He's yeah. he's extending them beyond the boundary of the play. Yeah, a little bit, which and is beyond the boundary of the state. Right, exactly. That's what I mean. Is, yeah, it's exactly, similar, yeah. But, but yeah. Um, the the only time that I really noticed, and the only time it really struck me, that we got really in a visual way rather than a, um, uh, rather than a, uh, you know, this kind of acting sort of way, uh, out of play, uh, out of the actual play was um, where he encounters I forget the character's name, but he um, Tamino encounters the member of the Brotherhood. Oh, the first priest he talks yes. to. We very much feel Whereas, like we're in a set at that one spot. Yeah. And that's the only yeah. time I really felt like we weren't on the stage. And yeah. then he immediately I, pulls I, us back by showing the girl. I think I think that's... Yeah. Um, that really feels like that because it's the, it's the first time that we're really stuck on the set. Um, there are other points later, especially with the larger crowd scenes... In the battle scene, where it's obviously not being staged on the same stage that we've been seeing, right, right. which is only about twenty five. Yeah, feet you can tell sometimes you're like, wait a minute, there's yeah. not enough space where we yeah. were. But that's that that point where they're in the small room on either side of a table is the first time that we're really aware that we're no longer right. And on I the became stage. very, very hyper aware of that. And then I really yeah. liked it, though he Bergman actually addresses that. Yes. By by immediately after those kind of scenes, showing us something to remind us that we're still in the theater. Yes. Because he exactly. knows that there's a, a very powerful awareness in this film yeah. of when the audience is going to go, wait a minute. That's exactly. not where we were. What's exactly. going on? And this here? is a love story to theater, just yeah. as much as just as yeah. much as anything else. Um And I just love that. I, I thought that was oh that when we I because it was like it's like literally he could hear what I was thinking that in my head I went wait a minute <laughs> that he's he's anticipating your reaction yeah like, we're, and, I, and like almost as soon as I I heard it in my the sign, head the sign of a really great director right knowing knowing your audience so well but even even 40 years right on, he knows what I'm <laughs> the thinking. way people are watching yeah. this movie yeah and, and he does it a couple times and Every time it happened, I was like, wow, that was surprising. How good, how well that, how smoothly that worked. Uh, yeah. And it's kind of amazing to think, yeah, 40, you know, 40 years later, to think that even 100 years later, that will still yeah. work. You know what I mean? That, so. Yeah, I just think that's amazing. Yeah, to me, yeah, that, that, that sort of the transcendence yeah. of time and is remarkable. Yeah. 
And the transcendence of time is, you know, that's why we're still listening. Well, yeah, exactly. You, you know? and then if you, yeah, extrapolate extrapolate that out further, yeah, that Mozart did the same thing, and we've crossed more than yeah. two hundred years with this same yeah. story, eliciting the same reactions and the same feelings. Uh, exactly. To the point where, like, the thing that we got about earlier is that me and my son are having similar reactions, and he can't even understand yeah. what they are saying. Exactly, exactly. He looks at me a couple uh, he times and he goes, he's funny, huh? <laughs> I'm like, you can't even understand what he's saying, kid. But you're right. Well, it's just, it's the emotion, it's the acting, yeah. you know. Uh, Papa Gino is, is this, uh, he gets a little physical. Too. Yeah, and there's um, enough of that. There's, and there's it, some yeah. physical comedy. And there's there's some physical comedy when uh, Papa Gina shows up as the old hag. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my son liked that a lot. Yeah. And and no and I sure. you know it's just things like that where just it's really um it's amazing how well it, it keys into its audience both both our director and our source material key into our into the audience so well it's just kind of yeah. phenomenal yeah well there you did mention that there are there are some stand, eh, some changes and I think I think some of them are actually pretty substantial um, I think there are also things that if uh, some of them. Uh, if Mozart had had the ability to do, he might have done. For instance, when Papagina first shows up as the old hag, the audience themselves have actually already seen that she's not just an old hag. Um, and because we know that she's a beautiful woman and it's all uh, a ploy against Papagino, uh, we can laugh at it. And he, he laughs at it because she she looks so ridiculous. Um, even though she he still buys into it because he's still got to say the lines he has. Right. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, there's there's some changes, um, like making Sarastro Pamina's father. Uh, in the original text, um, the original play, uh, during the uh, part where the queen's singing about begging Pamina to or coercing Pamina into killing uh, Sarastro by saying that she'll ban she'll she'll cut her off if she doesn't. Um, if I remember correctly, in the original, that she mentions that there, that Pamina's father is dead. Um, so there's, there's, it, it, you can argue ideal, ideologically he's dead, uh, in that they they stand as as opposed he is dead to her. Right. right. Um, so there's, it is not something that Bergman's creating whole cloth. It is, it is a reading of the play from from many years on that Sarastro is her father. Uh, but it's not, it's explicitly stated that he's not almost, you know, you can argue intent, but, but the, the literal words are that he's not, um, which Wikipedia, whoever wrote the Wikipedia article argues that, uh, that helps to remove the sexism of the story because, Sarastro's argument that he took Pamina away from the Queen of the Night because she needs a fa- she needs a, a man in her life and not to be influenced by this evil woman. Um, in the original is more all women are dumb liars and bad people. Uh, whereas in this, it can be argued that he's more saying that the Queen of the Night specifically is, that, is crazy. Yeah. Well, and I can Except, see that argument. Okay, go ahead. I could see that argument, except that uh, during the second trial, when uh, 
Tamina um, is being forced to Tamina is being forced to ignore Pamina as she shows up. Um, after that, I think is actually during the apology. Um, he uh, she says that she tries to make some excuse for her mother's behavior, or 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 she she somehow uh, bows to her mother, and and Tamino says, "Well, she's still she's still got the heart of a woman." Yeah, no, yeah, I I, um, I, I so there's still that, and that's that not is still the there. only incident. Um, yeah, I mean, but, okay. We ha- when we deal with these kind of works, we have to face some facts. Yeah, sexism. Yeah. The the is a the past thing. was different. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, for example, we we right off the bat we get the fact that the the queen of the night promises Tamino that if he yes. rescues her daughter, she will be his forever. We already yeah. within yeah. like three minutes yeah. at the start of the- this film. The woman, the woman as reward. Yeah, we, we, uh, we are already in and, a purely sexist environment, so we need to just get and over yes, it's that. Good. <laughs> it's good that it's good that we've, uh, you know, and it's not adding anything. Um, Bergman didn't create the scene where, uh, uh, what's his face, uh, <laughs> Papagino gets to Pamina first and shows her a picture of Tamino, and she falls in love with him as well. So you know. And and eventually, you know, and even in the original, um, it's Pamina at the end who says, "Hey, dummy, use the flute." Mm, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. There's some. Yeah, so you know, it, it's there. Um, there's also some some racism uh, in it that's a little less explicit here. Um, Monostatos, the evil Moor. He has a Moor, yeah, um, and and he is mentioned as a Moor despite the fact that he is he, very clearly he is not, not a Moor. He's not in traditional blackface, but in redface to be more of the devil, uh, which which brings up different issues, I think, because he's still named as a more. Yeah. Uh, but in the original, in the original, um, to, uh, Pamina is more afraid of him solely because he's a more. Um, and, and it does come scary up black man. in. And it's it still does, in. They didn't it, cut out that that dialogue. We explain. We it. at least get hints of that. Yeah, yeah. We still have the the references to why. It's terrifying. Why the Moor is terrifying yeah. is still yeah. in there about like what he will do to her and stuff. Uh, but yeah. again, you know, it's it's the time yeah, the past, it was made. The past right? is a foreign country. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. I try not to. You know, if it was made in the last hundred years, I feel an obligation to look negatively upon that sort yeah. of stuff. But when you're dealing with stuff this old, I kind of yeah. You know, if you're if you're going to avoid anything with that sort of objectionable content in it, you're going to have a very limited supply of things that you can actually yeah uh, enjoy. Well, I think we got in the same time, uh, same thing at one point when we were talking about uh, Hitchcock. You know, if you if your sexism in Hitchcock is is very blatant. Yes, <laughs> it exists, and and it's not just from characters; it's from directorship. It's you know. Um, if you need to work past that, pro- even though it's a problem, and we need to recognize, yeah, that we, these are we can't ignore these are things it. that need to be changed. Uh, we can't ignore it, but we need to work past it in order. Eh, we can't just write off the entire work because of 
distasteful well, things that, that right. we're it's not it's not an excuse to feel that way by saying eh, we can't we can't just say well that's just the past and, and right right we were we still need to we still need to engage in that but i would I say think. that in but, this situation i can deal with this a lot more easily than i can oh, deal yeah. with the the hitchcock version yes in that yes the hitchcock one often i feel detracts from the story like in an objectionable yes. way. Oh, like it actually makes the story absolutely. not as good because the woman is a vapid yeah. waste of screen yeah. real estate. Whereas in a, here, in yeah. the men. Well, okay. So while there is still some severe sexism and obviously racism, um, yeah. nobody in the film, especially when you have Papagino uh, and others being also playing the fool who are not. Yeah. Uh, Stereotypes of some race or sex. Yeah, you, it kind of yeah. helps balance it out a little bit. I don't feel like the film. It does. I don't feel like the story suffers as much from it as because it is also very it clearly does. fairy tale. Fair, uh, I can't speak yeah. English now anymore. No. Fairy that, tale. You you got that going for it. So um, the sexism we, is just we, as unrealistic as everything else. Yeah. Uh, so, and and one thing that is more more pronounced in the original work, and I think it's just because we're so far removed. Um, and and so Bergman doesn't doesn't play on it. But another thing we need to think about when we're thinking about uh, the problems of presentation, like sexism and racism, I think, is that in a lot of ways, um, and I don't know how how much of this is uh, interpretation from other people, and how much it was intent. Um, but there's a lot of talk about this, the magic flute being about. Um, the Enlightenment, the Freemasons versus the Church of Rome uh, and the Queen of the Night literally representing um, Austrian Queen uh, Marie Theresa, um, who was very religious, and the the Church of Rome, um, the Roman Catholic Church being more and more controlling um, for financial gain instead of the gain of knowledge, and that's what—that's a lot of what the early Enlightenment was was reacting against. To the the church, the church was corrupt as far as a repository for world knowledge, so they want they wanted to uh, broaden that. But still, also uh, Freemasonry and the Enlightenment era, um, as much as they wanted to broaden freedoms and and knowledge, still not real keen on giving women the vote. So, right. well, um, I you know the I've women never... the women are still thought about that interpretation. Yeah. Um, but then again, I try not to give too much credence to that kind well, of interpretation. Well, at the same time. In general, but... At the same time, what what Mozart intended with with all of that doesn't really matter all that much. Right. Um, well, I mean, yeah. yeah, exactly. We get into this thing where, regardless of what his intent was, he created an extremely enjoyable story to watch yeah and so um you know despite the sexism and, and the racism we yeah. can enjoy and you it. do you do downplay that uh downplay that quite a bit even in you know the original production was kind of set in ancient egypt whereas this is more of a timeless presentation um the prayer to the gods of light uh for instance is originally a prayer to isis and osiris oh, interesting. Um, so uh, it uh Takes it, taking it out of that place. Allusions to ancient Egypt are, are, are a pretty common masonry thing, too, especially at the time. So, 
you get that. Um, and eliminating that eliminates that interpretation in a lot of ways. So well, and for me, it makes it actually a little bit more clean in a certain sort of way. It kind of makes it well, more, yeah. Yeah. just feels, that. yeah, that timelessness it's, is nice. It's a, it's a timeless fairy tale instead of, instead of being a very specific set thing. Um, and yeah, and we can, we can forgive a lot of our problems with it, uh, ideologically by just reminding us uh, that it's a fairy tale at its heart. This is a fairy tale. There's an evil queen. Um, there's a possibly, uh, there's a complicated king. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very complicated king. <laughs> yeah. Um, who, at the same time, I under on the one hand, no, he's not as evil as the queen wants wants to make him out to be. Uh, but on the other hand, he still kidnapped his yeah, daughter yeah. Uh, a, because he thinks his wife is evil. Yeah, he's uh, also a benevolent she dictator. Needs the influence so. of a man, and he's a benevolent dictator. So, yeah, because everyone knows that he. What was I forget the quote now? Uh, he makes wise decisions, and we gladly obey. Yes. Yes. It's, yeah, <laughs> benevolent, but still a dictator. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah, he's he's cool. Um, but I still like him. One of my favorite characters. I like him, too. One of my favorite characters is actually the gatekeeper, uh, keeper in the the Chamber of Trials. Or oh, whatever. yeah, no, he's great. Um, that's 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 some classic stuff right there. I can't believe <laughs> the guys that send me. Or whatever. Yeah, the people he sends me, and he rolls his eyes. But yeah, and he he pops up every so often through that whole sequence, and it's it's really fun. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, for some reason, I have I have written in my notes um, because prior prior to that scene with her sleeping, uh, Monstatos is more of an enforcer than an outright bad guy. And of course, eventually he, he turns on, he turns on his team, um, and, and joins up with the queen, uh, to, to attack. But, uh, I, I have written in my notes, Monstatos sure took a turn for the creepy in the, let me sing while I fondle her. I know, man. And that's where my, 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 my copy got all weird. Yeah. And so for probably, a solid like it got really jittery. Okay, like we started, we uh, start, so we would pause every couple seconds during that event. So yeah. my son got to watch an extended version of the fondling. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah, no. it was uh, troublesome, but no, no, it was yeah, yeah. He really does take a uh, he does and and like professing yeah. his love and it gets really stalkery and weird uh, but well, it's kind of nice because it, it it helps us establish him as being a bad guy yeah one one thing i really like about some of the changes they made is that they didn't just make changes but they also uh explored the ramifications of those changes so for instance in a lot of productions uh papa Gino's costume is uh he's covered in the feathers of the birds that he's killed because he's the he's the queen's court fowler, um, and so he he's a little monstrous in in his costume, or at least you know he's he's fun still because he's still the same character, but he's confusing to look at and possibly frightening if you're not familiar with him. Right. Um, 
So when he first meets Monstatos, uh, when he's talking to uh, um, to uh, uh, Amina, um, and, and Monstatos walks in, and in this movie, Monstatos threatens him and, and throws him into the orchestra pit, I believe. Yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, more or less. He throws him out a gate, and he's just out of the scene. And then he pops up behind the table. It's, it's, it's a great it movie. Is, it is great, too. yeah. Um, but the... Uh, in the original, the way that that uh, scene progresses is that Pagina, Papagino pops up in covered in the, the feathers, and Monstatos runs away because he's afraid of this creature. Um, so it's a very it affects characterization too. Right? Yeah, you can't just, you can't word. just change yeah. that part you without can't make arbitrary yeah, changes without changing the story a little bit. But again, like I kind of like how it all plays out in this version oh yeah so. oh yeah and this has become a very definitive version uh, Kenneth Branagh in 2006 made a film version of this uh, with a script by Stephen Fry um, and they they Wh- follow Brokeman's lead in a lot of ways which uh, by the way South is Earth. the version yeah. that Hulu tried to tell me was the Igmar Bergman version well that is not yes, true yes we they even present the cover art for the Igmar version, the and then one? they play 2006, oh, no. yeah, to the point where I got about five, I, I got maybe two or three minutes, I was like, this is not what I'm looking for. <laughs> yes. So maybe someday I'll go watch that version, I don't know how good it is, but kind of curious. Yeah. Uh, apparently, um... Set in World War Two, I think. World, yeah, World War One. Yeah, I'm not sure. like that. World War One or World War Two. Um... Uh... <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Monsados does not commit suicide at the end of uh, Mozart's version, um, and he really offhandedly does in this. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it's obviously that they their mission has failed. Serastro shows up, and the sun is rising, and then he just stabs himself in the heart. Yeah, yeah I know it's really weird. It's like it's not even full frame. It's kind of off in the corner. It's yeah. Like, yeah, he's like behind the queen. Yeah, and she's yeah, yeah. Reacting I'm not sure sun. why he does that, but mm, yeah, oh well. The motivation is, I don't. I assume that in the magic flu, it's been so long since I've yeah, seen a production of it. Uh, I assume that he just kind of disappears at the end of the script, and they would like so to make him a not reason disappear, for him to just yeah. disappearing. Yeah, but you know, I have no idea. So, <laughs> ah. No, yeah, I, I, I experienced a moment of, is he stabbing himself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's but he's such life. a, he's such, for me, kind of a non-character anyway, that I it's kind true. of, I mean, he, he serves his purpose, in the, as all the characters really in this story do, he's just there for a yeah. purpose. He's not, uh, a lot of the characters are not really characters, so much as elements of the story uh and so for him like you know whether he stabs himself or not i kind of had already pushed him out of my mind (laughs) and so watching him stab himself in the corner was odd yeah well once once he joins forces with the queen uh he's Less of a less of an important character. Well, right, and he's fulfilled you know, he's his there, final and, purpose and, and anyway at that point. Yeah, you know he he's the one who obviously helps her out in in trying to enact her revenge. But it's, 
yeah. Anyway, it's not something that needs to be uh, focused on, I guess. You know, he's there. Um, right. The actor who played Monstatos, by the way, is named Ragnar Olfung. And I love, I love Swedish names. No, that's an awesome name, by the way. Um, One of the, uh, one of the priests is played by a guy named Sixten Fark. Sixten Fark. Oh, there we are, yeah. No, they're all awesome, though. We have... Sixton yeah. Fark, Arn Hendrickson, Sven Eric Jacobson, Ulf Johannesson, Ulf. or yeah, yes. and then Folk Johnson. Oh man. Yes. These are they're yeah, wonderful. Beautiful names. And then some I don't even know how to pronounce. Papa Gino's name <laughs> is beyond my comprehension. There are it's this is the kind of name where we suddenly get into Stargate territory. Yes, Hawken Hagajar. There's, there's, there's circles, circles above yeah. letters. I, don't I assume know what those that are. Means. I assume those are Stargate uh, codes. And if we plug in Hawken Hagajar into the into the Stargate, we'll go to some planet. Yeah, a planet of sweets. Yeah. Oh, exciting. <laughs> that would be exciting. It would be a heck of an episode. I hope it's a snowy planet of sweets. I kind of hope. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, but no. Yeah, no. The but like um I loved watching um Papa uh in this uh in this version. Yeah. He's a I really like his acting. That's basically within seconds of his appearance, that's when my son looked over and he goes, He's funny, huh? And I'm like <laughs> I'm sure yep, he is. Oh no, and he's 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 obviously a very gifted comedic stage. Yeah, actor, he does a very good job. The, the pantomime that he that he, he does. One well, and, and his facial expressions are just wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Like it's yeah, you follow them so easily. I just thought it was just a joy to watch, and uh, then my son spent the rest of the evening running around playing the pan flute. <laughs> Does he actually have no? A pan but panamiming a pan flute as yes. he ran around the house going <laughs> with his hand. It's yeah, it's no, yes. it, it oh, that's so cute. Really had a pretty profound effect on my family this evening this film good so. I'm glad <laughs> good well you can watch it every day now well it will be the new Thomas the yeah Hedger. right uh, no I, I to the point where I'm considering going out and trying to purchase this but the problem is is I would really love to get it would be wonderful if I could get an English version that mm. is as good as this <laughs> I don't yeah, I don't. I don't, probably I don't know if such a thing. And, and Obviously, the 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 Branagh directed uh, Stephen Fry written uh, English version from two thousand six might be. Uh, you can give it a chance, yeah. but it's certainly not going to be as. It was certainly know, not going to be as. Branagh's a great director, but it's also from what I saw of it is not stage yeah. production. It's a movie. Yeah, and it's very part different. of what makes this so enjoyable for me is the fact that it is. Like watching a like a stage produ- production taken to eleven, and yeah. and I want to keep. I, I that's what I want. I want to maintain that, and I don't think that exists. Yeah. So, sadly, my son will have to learn how to read in order to enjoy <laughs> this with his father as time goes on. But yeah, well, good luck. Yeah, um, there is. Uh... There is an adaptation in English called Arctic Magic Flute, 
What? Uh, set in rural Alaska. Okay. Uh, if you get, if you get, uh, sung in English. Um, setting the action in northern Alaska at an unspecified post-apocalyptic future date. What? <laughs> I am super interested okay, in what's this. What's it called? It is unfortunately. I don't think it's a film. Uh, it is a stage version, oh, first staged in February eighth, two thousand seven, in Juneau. Man. It is just called Arctic Magic Flute. Man, that um, should be a movie. Yeah. Uh, well, no. See, that's the thing, though, is er- almost everybody's, um, almost all the other versions of this you see are not stage production style, except for the only other one you can find is the one that's the original German version that you can find if you type in the Magic Flute. Yeah. This is the first one. That's the first one that'll pop up. Is um, yeah, I forget where it was performed, but uh, with this hyper dramatic uh, picture of the the Queen of the Night on the cover yes, in blues yes. and purples. Uh, well, one thing one thing I really liked about this is is not only did they translate you know, the German into uh, Swedish that worked and and worked lyrically. Uh, but then when they translated the subtitles, sometimes the English, they rhymed too. It was uh, amazing. They were they were always lyrical, yeah, or almost. Well, always I tried to say it. I I kind of gave up saying them all in my head, so I kind of yeah. lost track of whether or not they were all lyrical. But quite a few of them. Were. I don't I don't know, I don't know if lyrically they fit the music, but they certainly were. Uh, they were poetic yeah, they were and, like there's a lot of they have the good rhyming and scheme the... and stuff in there. Yeah. I, I was impressed, except for my copy had uh, spelling errors. But let's. Let's nitpick. Did you watch it on YouTube? Is that what happened? Well, yeah. Like, I, there's no, um, there's no stream. Yeah, I got this from the library. Yeah, there's, so. it's, yeah. I was really disappointed. I was really hoping this would be something that would be widely available, but it's practically non-existent. That's unfortunate. Well, I'll tell you what, I will steal my version from the library and mail it. To yes, you. please. Um, no, I won't, Pat. That's a bad idea. I'm not going to steal from the library. Sorry, I, I would hate to lead you down a, a bad path. First stealing movies from the library, before you know it, you're raping and pillaging. It's true. That's that's how that works. Yes, it's a gate, stealing from the library is a, a gateway crime. It is. Um, but no, it's, no, it's. I was just a little bit disappointed that I would have thought that, considering when and where this was made in the circumstances, that this would be like one of the ones that would be hyper available. Considering it was a, yeah. t- a Swedish TV production from 1975, I was like, oh man, I'm just going to be able to type this bad boy in and then I'm going to have like options everywhere. And turns out it just does not exist in a digital format, hardly at all. And it's always disappointing because that's the kind of thing that... A mo- no, it uh, does not. A movie this good, I want to be widely available to anybody who wants to watch it. You know what I mean? I yeah. want... To be able to tell people, oh yeah, just go watch it on Netflix, man, or something like that, and just enjoy it. Yeah. But you can't say that to people because you say, well, okay, first thing you need to do is fly to America, <laughs> then you need to sign up, you need to get a green card, then what I want you to yeah. do is I want you to sign up for a library card, and then I want you to go to the library, and I want you to rent the Ingmar Bergman version of the Magic Flute from that library. Yes, uh, it's a it's a bit go. of a production. Well, you can you can buy it from Amazon. It is for sale, yes. uh, but only a DVD, not a not a digital copy. Yes, which copy. is what really made me sad. Yeah. So I will probably the Brana version is on Netflix for some. Yes, reason. it is, and it's also um, on Hulu. Uh, probably not. Probably not actually that surprising, but uh, yeah. 
Anyway. Well, yeah. No. The, I, Anything else? We, no. Uh, we this is one of those about? ones where it's so good. We. Yeah. But no, we, I, we, think I mean, we've talked we've, about it. But I, I feel like I always feel like when when they're this good, we just basically talk about how awesome they are. Uh, but yeah. you know, you get you know when they're this awesome, there's not a lot you can say. It's true. <laughs> so I think we're going to pull this to a close. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, next time we'll be talking about, uh, what is it, Le Million uh, by René Clair, 1931. Uh, is it French? I think it's French. Yes, it's French. I have um, no idea. And that is available on Hulu Plus, so you won't be that. I won't, that I won't have to fly hard. to America to get a um, library card to watch it. Yeah, it is the story of a uh, winning lottery ticket uh, traveling through different people's hands, I believe. Um, and apparently it was big, big influence on the Marx Brothers and Charlie Chaplin. I, it actually um, sounds kind of interesting, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so another another musical comedy for Ooh. us next time. I like, I like where the yeah. Criterion Collection is going these days. <laughs> musical comedy is right up my alley. Yeah, I know you like it. Uh, after that, I, I after that, it is not, there is no way the next movie, based on its cover, is going to be a musical <laughs> okay, comedy. Okay, please do. I, uh, two episodes from now, it's a movie called Vagabond, 1985, Agnes Varda, uh, also French. Um, not but, a musical uh, comedy? I'm going to guess I'm going to do my... It's described as sparse and poetic. Um, uh, here's so. what I'm going to say, Adam. I think maybe from now on, I'm going to try it to see all the movies we watch through a lens of musical, <laughs> a musical yeah. comedy. See how it goes. Um, I think that will not last very no, long. I don't think so either. Uh, but good luck. Yeah, I'm going to do my best. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's Lost in Criteria, and we'll see yep. you next time. See you next time. hosted by Adam Glass and John Patrick Owatari Dorgan. Jonathan Hape did the music, and Adam Glass also edited it all together. Feel free to contact us by email via lostincriteria at withtwobrains.com or join us on the web at www.lostincriterion.com.